Section 9 of Mark Twain's Autobiography, Volume 2. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. Wednesday, February 7, 1906. Susie Clement's Biography of Her Father. Mr. Clement's Opinion of Critics, etc. When Susie was thirteen, and was a slender little maid with plaited tails of copper-tinged brown hair down her back, and was perhaps the busiest bee in the household hive by reason of the manifold studies, health exercises, and recreations she had to attend to, she secretly, and of her own motion, and out of love, added another task to her labors, the writing of a biography of me. She did this work in her bedroom at night, and kept her record hidden. After a little the mother discovered it, and filched it, and let me see it, then told Susie what she had done, and how pleased I was, and how proud. I remember that time with a deep pleasure. I had had compliments before, but none that touched me like this, none that could approach it for value in my eyes. It has kept that place always since. I have had no compliment, no praise, no tribute from any source that was so precious to me as this one was and still is. As I read it now, after all these many years, it is still a king's message to me, and brings me the same dear surprise it brought me then, with the pathos added of the thought that the eager and hasty hand that sketched it and scrawled it will not touch mine again, and I feel as the humble and unexpectant must feel when their eyes fall upon the edict that raises them to the ranks of the noble. Yesterday, while I was rummaging in a pile of ancient notebooks of mine which I had not seen for years, I came across a reference to that biography. It is quite evident that several times at breakfast and dinner in those long-past days I was posing for the biography. In fact, I clearly remember that I was doing that, and I also remember that Susie detected it. I remember saying a very smart thing with a good deal of an air at the breakfast table one morning, and that Susie observed to her mother privately a little later that Papa was doing that for the biography. I cannot bring myself to change any line or word in Susie's sketch of me, but will introduce passages from it now and then, just as they came in, their quaint simplicity out of her honest heart, which was the beautiful heart of a child. What comes from that source has a charm and grace of its own which may transgress all the recognized laws of literature, if it choose, and yet be literature still, 
and worthy of hospitality. The spelling is frequently desperate, but it was Susie's, and it shall stand. I love it, and cannot profane it. To me it is gold. To correct it would alloy it, not refine it. It would spoil it. It would take from it its freedom and flexibility and make it stiff and formal. Even when it is most extravagant, I am not shocked. It is Susie's spelling, and she was doing the best she could, and nothing could better it for me. She learned languages easily. She learned history easily. She learned music easily. She learned all things easily, quickly, and thoroughly, except spelling. She even learned that after a while. But it would have grieved me but little if she had failed in it, for, although good spelling was my one accomplishment, I was never able to greatly respect it. When I was a schoolboy sixty years ago, we had two prizes in our school. One was for good spelling, the other for amiability. These things were thin, smooth, silver disks, about the size of a dollar. Upon the one was engraved in flowing Italian script the words good spelling. On the other was engraved the word amiability. The holders of these prizes hung them about the neck with a string, and those holders were the envy of the whole school. There wasn't a pupil that wouldn't have given a leg for the privilege of wearing one of them a week, but no pupil ever got a chance except John Robards and me. John Robards was eternally and indestructibly amiable. I may even say devilishly amiable, fiendishly amiable, exasperatingly amiable. That was the sort of feeling that we had about that quality of his. So he always wore the amiability medal. I always wore the other medal. That word always is a trifle too strong. We lost the medals several times. It was because they became so monotonous. We needed a change. Therefore, several times we traded medals. It was a satisfaction to John Robards to seem to be a good speller, which he wasn't, and it was a satisfaction to me to seem to be amiable for a change. But, of course, these changes could not long endure, for some schoolmate or other would presently notice what had been happening, and that schoolmate would not have been human if he had lost any time in reporting this treason. The teacher took the medals away from us, at once, of course, and we always had them back again before Friday night. If we lost the medals Monday morning, John's amiability was at the top of the list Friday afternoon 
when the teacher came to square up the week's account. The Friday afternoon session always closed with spelling down. Being in disgrace, I necessarily started at the foot of my division of spellers, but I always slaughtered both divisions and stood alone with the medal around my neck when the campaign was finished. I did miss on a word once, just at the end of one of these conflicts, and so lost the medal. I left the first R out of February, but that was to accommodate a sweetheart. My passion was so strong just at that time that I would have left out the whole alphabet if the word had contained it. As I have said before, I never had any large respect for good spelling. That is my feeling yet. Before the spelling book came with its arbitrary forms, men unconsciously revealed shades of their characters, and also added enlightening shades of expression to what they wrote by their spelling, and so it is possible that the spelling book has been a doubtful benevolence to us. Susie began the biography in 1885 when I was in the fiftieth year of my age, and she in the fourteenth of hers. She begins in this way. We are a very happy family. We consist of Papa, Mama, Jean, Clara, and me. It is Papa I am writing about, and I shall have no trouble in not knowing what to say about him as he is a very striking character. But wait a minute. I will return to Susie presently. In the matter of slavish imitation, man is the monkey's superior all the time. Uh, the average man is destitute of independence of opinion. He is not interested in contriving an opinion of his own by study and reflection, but is only anxious to find out what his neighbor's opinion is and slavishly adopt it. A generation ago I found out that the latest review of a book was pretty sure to be just a reflection of the earliest review of it, that whatever the first reviewer found to praise or censure in the book would be repeated in the latest reviewer's report, with nothing fresh added. Note, hardly true today, A.B.P. End of note. Therefore, more than once I took the precaution of sending my book in manuscript to Mr. Howells when he was editor of the Atlantic Monthly, so that he could prepare a review of it at leisure. I knew he would say the truth about the book. I also knew that he would find more merit than demerit in it, because I already knew that that was the condition of the book. I allowed no copy of that book to go out to the press until after Mr. Howells' notice of it had appeared. That book was always safe. There wasn't a man behind a pen in all America 
that had the courage to find anything in the book which Mr. Howells had not found. There wasn't a man behind a pen in America that had spirit enough to say a brave and original thing about the book on his own responsibility. I believe that the trade of critic in literature, music, and the drama is the most degraded of all trades, and that it has no real value, certainly no large value. When Charles Dudley Warner and I were about to bring out The Gilded Age, the editor of the Daily Graphic persuaded me to let him have an advance copy, he giving me his word of honor that no notice of it should appear in his paper until after the Atlantic Monthly notice should have appeared. This reptile published a review of the book within three days afterward. I could not really complain because he had only given me his word of honor as security. I ought to have required of him something substantial. I believe his notice did not deal mainly with the merit of the book or the lack of it, but with my moral attitude toward the public. It was charged that I had used my reputation to play a swindle upon the public, that Mr. Warner had written as much as half of the book, and that I had used my name to float it and give it currency, a currency which it could not have required without my name, and that this conduct of mine was a grave fraud upon the people. The graphic was not an authority upon any subject whatever. It had a sort of distinction in that it was the first and only illustrated daily newspaper that the world had seen, but it was without character. It was poorly and cheaply edited. Its opinion of a book or of any other work of art was of no consequence. Everybody knew this, yet all the critics in America, one after the other, copied the graphic's criticism, merely changing the phraseology, and left me under that charge of dishonest conduct. Even the great Chicago Tribune, the most important journal in the Middle West, was not able to invent anything fresh, but adopted the view of the humble daily graphic, dishonesty charge and all. However, let it go. It is the will of God that we must have critics, and missionaries, and congressmen, and humorists, and we must bear the burden. What I have been traveling toward all this time is this. The first critic that ever had occasion to describe my personal appearance littered his description with foolish and inexcusable errors whose aggregate furnished the result that I was distinctly and distressingly unhandsome. That description floated around the country in the papers and was in constant use and wear for a quarter of a century. It seems strange to me that 
apparently no critic in the country could be found who could look at me and have the courage to take up his pen and destroy that lie that lie began its course on the pacific coast in eighteen sixty four and it likened me in personal appearance to petroleum v nasby who had been out there lecturing for twenty-five years afterward no critic could furnish a description of me without fetching in nasby to help out my portrait i knew nasby well and he was a good fellow but in my life i have not felt malignantly enough about any more than three persons to charge those persons with resembling nasby it hurts me to the heart these things to this day it hurts me to the heart and it had long been a distress to my family including susie that the critics should go on making this wearisome mistake year after year when there was no foundation for it even when a critic wanted to be particularly friendly and complimentary to me he didn't dare to go beyond my clothes he did not venture beyond that frontier when he had finished with my clothes he had said all the kind things the pleasant things the complimentary things he could risk then he dropped back on nasby yesterday i found this clipping in the pocket of one of those ancient memorandum books of mine it is of the date of thirty-nine years ago and both the paper and the ink are yellow with the bitterness that i felt in that old day when i clipped it out to preserve it and brood over it and grieve about it i will copy it here to wit a correspondent of the philadelphia press writing of one schuyler colfax's receptions says of our washington correspondent mark twain the delicate humorist was present quite a lion as he deserves to be mark is a bachelor faultless in taste whose snowy vest is suggestive of endless quarrels with washington washerwomen but the heroism of mark is settled for all time for such purity and smoothness were never seen before his lavender gloves might have been stolen from some turkish harem so delicate were they in size but more likely anything else were more likely than that in form and feature he bears some resemblance to the immortal nasby but whilst petroleum is brunette to the core twain is golden amber-hued melting blonde let us return to susie's biography now and get the opinion of one who is unbiased papa's appearance has been described many times but very incorrectly he has beautiful gray hair not any too thick or any too long but just right a roman nose 
which greatly improves the beauty of his features, kind blue eyes, and a small mustache. He has a wonderfully shaped head and profile. He has a very good figure. In short, he is an extraordinarily fine-looking man. All his features are perfect, except that he hasn't extraordinary teeth. His complexion is very fair, and he doesn't wear a beard. He is a very good man, and a very funny one. He has got a temper, but we all of us have in this family. He is the loveliest man I ever saw, or ever hope to see, and, oh, so absent-minded. He does tell perfectly delightful stories. Clara and I used to sit on each arm of his chair and listen while he told us stories about the pictures on the wall. I remember the storytelling days vividly. They were a difficult and exacting audience, those little creatures. End of section 9, Wednesday, February 7th, 1906.